Film runs through our veins and continuously makes us interact with it. I'm your host, Edward Frumkin, and this is Real Print. In this episode, contributor Sean Naughton and I analyze the resurgence of musicals in 2021. Then guest Matt Schack discusses the need of local storytelling and shares his tricky path of becoming a filmmaker. Finally, in today's concluding thought, I share my highlights of the 2022 Big Sky Film Festival. Some portions are recorded on Zoom, so bear that in mind when you hear the audio and enjoy the show. Hi, Sean. Thank you for coming to today's Real Print. Hey, Eddie. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we're going to discuss a resurgence of musicals now as there was a moment where I thought that the musical period would be dead, but no, it's just came back last year in 2021 with amazing hits like Annette, In the Heights, Encanto, and Tick, Tick, Boom. And uh, I, are you a fan of musicals? Um, I didn't used to be. I will say, I think that La La Land actually kind of turned me around on them. Um, but at right now, I am a big fan of musicals. Yeah, I, I enjoyed most of them last year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or at least all the ones I saw. I, um, I didn't see like the uh, Cinderella on Amazon. I missed that one, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I think it might be a good decision to... <laughs> not watch it well for me personally like i sometimes like more now see it's just more as a medium as when i was a kid i was like why do you have to sing it out when you have to do other things human beings because we do not just stop our moment of whatever the hell we do and then just sing it out but yeah, I think I was a similar way. I I liked having my movies being, you know, very structured and rigid in their the world rules and everything. And then I see musicals and I'd be like, all right, he's singing right now, but he's also like talking to these people, but also in other lines, he's just singing to the audience and they don't hear him. And I was like, what's the rules of this? I never understand it. Um, I have thankfully learned to, you know, throw that out the window and just enjoy it. Yeah, same, like, as a kid, you're like, like, how does everyone else know how to dance together at times? Like, <laughs> exactly. did they even met this person before? <laughs> but no, like, I don't think it's like that anymore. And feel more, a little more appreciative and recognizing how we could release our emotional suffering or pains. And uh, it's just that, like, one of the musicals that I will enjoy the most would be more of an anime movie. Not necessarily always Disney, but like South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, but also um, some of the MGM classics with Gene Kelly, like American in Paris, and uh, Senior Rain, as well as, well, I'm not, sh- I know that I've seen Way we, sh- we Heard, which is, not- oh, Yentl, like that is a Barbara Streisand, I remember for sure. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's just that um, for like a while, like I thought that it could have been dead, but due to COVID, 
it helped the resurgence, in my opinion. As yeah. It was supposed to be released last in 2020. I think there was like kind of little kind of sparks flying in the people wanting musicals after La La Land. And then once like Hamilton hit Disney Plus, and I think there was more people were like, yeah, there's definitely an audience for these still. And then we had whatever, eight plus last year. Um, and were any of them hits? <laughs> Maybe Tick Tick Boom was a decent hit for Netflix, but um audiences did not seem to care much for any of the other ones yeah like in the high was a great summer start of the return this resurgence like i remember watching like a high school production of it at the top theater festival in illinois while i was in high school i really enjoyed like the aspects like even though i did not like that they removed some of the aspects and of course, the cover is in controversy, but um, but in the highest was definitely really great, just of a throwback from the MGM, particularly in the sequence where Corey Hawkins and Leslie Grace were singing, like and even dancing on the top of the ceiling, and then the kid dropped his mouth, and I just feel like that we sort of merged of the Fred Astaire cribbing and uh, the what Leslie Grace, Corey Hoggins, the amazing choreographer, John Chu and Lynn did in, in the Heights. Yeah, I had a similar reaction. I liked in the Heights a lot as well. It, it could have been partly because I uh, humbly I'll brag that I saw it at the Music Box Theater right when it reopened in the summer. So it was a nice big rowdy crowd ready to eat up a good musical and uh, it was a great experience. But yeah, everything you said, I thought it was really uh, just very fun, the great just vibe all around, great ambiance with the, the summer heat and, you know, just it offered a nice escape, which I feel like is the best thing that musicals have going for them right now is I think people are itching more for escapism stuff. And I think that's what a lot of these musicals were trying to trying to itch for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another musical that you'll discuss is Tick, Tick, Boom, just because I, I enjoy most of it. The, the one thing, the one song I did not like is Real Life, like, because I have, it's the shot, not the scene, but the shot is fine where Robin De Jesus is dropping the papers and you have to sing while you're in pain, knowing that you have to die. Like, that was, I think, a moment where you didn't need a song. It just like executed uh, funny in a way where I thought that he'll seem so loud that he'll break either the glass or the like table or the window nearby because I thought it'd be like a powerful in such a moment. And also in a musical that the thing I have the problem is like reviewing people's um diseases like as a plot point for a character development. Like, I don't want, like, people's own, like, diseases or the things that are going on. Like, the things, whether it's a car crash or cancer, that will force the other character to grow. Like, that was poorly mishandled, which sometimes makes me think of um, the crime game where they had Jay Davidson's character as a trans person to be revealed. Like, it's just sometimes, like, I understand we need 
queer characters who have uh, these types, these events in their lives. But I don't want that to be a turning point for a straight character mm -hmm. in movies. Yeah, I completely get what you're saying. I think that I was also a little mixed on uh, Tick, Tick, Boom, similar to you. But I think that all the performances definitely really shine. And that's where it kind of won me over. I think Garfield's great. I like Vanessa Hudgens a lot. I love Bradley Woodford, Stephen Sondheim, rest in peace. Um, he's just a very <laughs> muttery and uh, it's a very low key performance, but he has a great presence to him. I love. Mm -hmm. But I did enjoy the other parts of In High Like Just that one scene really was the one and some of the documentary bookings was a little inconsistent for me. Like I know that mm -hmm. there was of the hour for the film Law of Jonathan Larson. But I really enjoy Sunday as you could definitely tell from just this performance alone that it was uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's Love Letter to Broadway, which featured a lot of Broadway star cameos like Brian Stokes Mitchell, where I know him more from Glee and Mr. Robot, um, Tony winner Andre De Shields um, of Hate Town, um, Fun Homes, Beth Malone, and other amazing top Broadway stars and in that sequence and just really contrast to where in that song in particular contrast to how you should stay at home while and all these people be doing something on a matinee Sunday Sunday mm -hmm. matinee. Yeah it was I thought that was a very fun song great to see all those faces most of them I recognized. I'm not super into Broadway theater actors, so I had to look a couple up, <laughs> admittedly. But it was, there was that, like, Brian Stokes Mitchell. I, I enjoy his other work, and it, he was an ace pop-up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then with, well, I have not seen Annette, but is it possible you can share your thoughts on that movie? Sure. Um, I know that I enjoy Simon Helberg's dedication and commitment to just doing a lot of behind the scenes shit to just be in this Leo's correct movie. You know what comes from Leo's, whether mm -hmm. it's this musical on a ship or a rubber, oh, holy motors. <laughs> yeah. Holy motors. You know what comes from cracks. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, and that's the only Leo Cracks movie I've seen, to be honest. So I'm not sure I'm the best um sort of for most knowing person on his stylistic sort of um consistencies throughout his films and stuff but and Annette I know a lot of people loved it I was, it was another one I was kind of a little mixed on it just kind of some of the stuff just kind of fell flat for me which you can kind of say is the point it's kind of <laughs> just very out there and whatever like I enjoyed Driver and Cotillard and Helberg I thought he was great and everything but to me it was very much like um and I'm gonna out myself here as a a ambivalent Sparks fan but I like maybe one in four of their songs and that's how I felt about Annette as well <laughs> uh, I'll definitely update you like in the future of when I get a chance to see Annette but yeah, I, I know that there are always going to be movies where it's bad and it's supposed to be bad. It's so good. And it's something like that. I will say the opening song and the opening sequence, that is genuinely fantastic. I, I love that very much. 
but then it's like whatever it's like a two and a half hour movie and by the end it was it was kind of uh it was pushing me a bit <laughs> and uh, with Encanto like I was lucky enough to see a sneak preview of that movie where oh at Scat Savannah where one of the three directors was giving a presentation on the background and you see most of the first and partially of the second act but they will not show us the ending because they want us to literally see it when it comes out. And mm-hmm. like with Encanto, like it has amazing cast of uh, Stephanie Beatriz, John Leguizamo, and a lot more faces that are more in the telenovela scene. So I would need to know more. And there's also one with Valderrama, Candy Mandy. And that I enjoy just like about there's a finding that outsider aspect of well the ones that you should know everything about when you're supposed to have magic but no and uh, about human emotions where it's not the magic that makes us but more of our personalities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen Encanto twice actually, so it's it's been one that that has grown on me um, definitely a lot. I think thematically it has, it's saying a lot of very interesting things about um, the Hispanic family and the sort of intergenerational trauma that can come with a family of migrants. Um, it's very baffling to me that we don't talk about Bruno is the song that <laughs> popped from it. <laughs> I have no idea where that came from. I think that I, don't, I won't say I don't want to be too down on that song because I think it's fine, honestly. Um, but the film in general, yeah, I think that the animation is is gorgeous, of course. Um, there's some really nice sequences of where the color pops. Um, but um, some of the Lin manualisms just get a little samey for me, especially in a year when he's doing writing songs or directing and being a part of four different musical releases <laughs> whether it's in the heights or um i'm blanking on the netflix um, no the netflix animated one that he did the music for um no, I, i'm i'm blanking no, on it right now i can look it up but that and encanto um i think that it's just kind of maybe spread as himself too thin um but there's a lot to love about encanto definitely yeah, I wanted to talk about, we only need to talk about Bruno, like, it's so weird how, out of all the Disney songs of late, this one was the first one to be on the U.S. Billboard number one hit, the first one since A Whole New World, and really enjoy seeing sometimes a film anthem being a number one hit, whether it's For Else Happy, which I don't really think of it as a Despicable Me movie because I first heard of it before the damn mm-hmm. movie. Same. Well. And Can't Stop the Feeling, which I get can tell now that it was more of a more of a Trolls movie song than mm-hmm. a song that takes place out of that movie. But it's just that what makes, what do you think makes a song from a movie to be so widespread 
and have that crazy deep admiration where uh-huh. the other film songs, even like the James Bond songs from Sam Smith or Billie Eilish are not even number one. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, it's completely baffling to me. I, I, I would think before you could sort of trend a pattern when you're talking a whole new world or let it go in Disney songs. But I think my best theory like that I could give would be that like, we don't talk about Bruno is enough of a sort of hodgepodge of like each verse has maybe something for everyone. If um, part of the song's not working for you, like I, I don't, I really don't know how it, how it pops so much, especially it's very funny to think of it as after the deadline for submission for best <laughs> Uh, original song where they had to submit those Oriritas, which a song that I love actually from the film. Um, but because, yeah, it's, it's really, it's just really odd to think about it in comparison to all the, like you said, the anthems of a James Bond or prior Disney films. <laughs> yeah, it's just that with, we don't need to talk about Bruno becomes more specific just in the title alone, whereas others are just moods like happy and yeah. can't stop that feeling <laughs> and it's so funny how i i think one of the reasons why in my opinion this song became number one is because of the different ensemble that came from each of the different actors that are partake and due to the many voices it can easily become a social media trend where there could be many actors you could play out these voices or the two people just have different titles above how of that mood like a before after but yeah that's why i think one that's how we don't need to talk about Bruno became number one i think that's a good theory yeah like that's just a theory it's not a fact don't quote me on that <laughs> but like where do you think musicals can go from here um well i think yeah there i think there's still a market out there that is untapped especially um now that i think a big thing that people forget about maybe not all the releases but for something like in the heights is that it did come out in that um same day release streaming platform or plan that HBO Max had and now they've done away with that this year um I don't know of any musicals on their release calendar this year what in general the musicals that are coming out um but I think that it's bound to sort of stick at some point if they keep chugging along um West Side Story had decent legs after um it premiered whatever in December um, I think it'll get another boost from all the Oscar nominations, which is a good thing because West Side Story is my favorite musical from last year. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know if it's good to bring this up, but the, the Martin Scorsese argument for why uh, when he did his big um, typing out his thoughts on superhero films, he thought he his one of his big points was that people aren't clamoring or weren't clamoring for superhero movies they were just what was being offered so eventually they internalized that and that became what they wanted because that's all they had um i think 
you don't necessarily like there now that there is a superhero sort of like that sort of has been filled by superheroes it might be hard to flood the market with a bunch of musicals and try to ask for the same outcome but I think that um it's certainly not hurting anyone releasing all these like Mm -hmm. I'm enjoying them yeah me too like I just enjoy seeing a lot more of an original film musical instead of just an adaptation at a popular theatrical street nearby us but I do want to explore how musicals can be more of an expository um, sensory experience, but also as well as see more how the different visual abilities it can take due to like the possibilities of CGI now, as like how in the heist pulled off at points and felt like that I just worry if for film musicals, if it becomes like a novelty thing where people will reuse some of them, but not for a specific purpose in the stories that they tell it, they just do for fun. That's the thing I worry about the musicals. Like they will be just singing and dancing, not much of a story within. And I do agree with you about what you said about the Scorsese thing about like this is what we have right now. We have West Side Story 2021, Annette, They Pick Boom in the Heights, and Encanto. And there's just like a time where we have what we have. And we want to make great use of that before it becomes a thing that's for, um, just niche audiences yeah I think that's that's something that uh sort of the musical genre can have over the superhero one and sort of trying to compete for (laughs) audiences is that something like you can have something like an Annette (laughs) where you have a baby Annette and such like a niche audience for it but then you can also have a beloved West Side Story update that successfully does that just as well um whereas superhero movies at least so far what we've gotten they've sort of had to stick within the confines of universe building or pushing a grander narrative forward Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's like great about what we have to add on musicals and uh, like i do want to Say that like it's always great to see one from a fifth adaptation where um, people that are not on Broadway are not or like in a huge community theater wise that do not have that theatrical production nearby but can see a film adaptation where I do wish at times they could have the actors from the musical to be in those movies. That's some of my critiques on. Hollywood musicals, but yeah, thanks for bringing up, sharing my thoughts on this resurgence of of one's thought to be dead genre, and I hope that there will be more versions within this medium. Thanks for having me, Eddie. It was great to talk.
Matt, thank you for coming to today's episode of Real Print. Hey, Eddie, glad to be here. Cool, and you're one of the top filmmakers in Missouri, Columbia specific. And before we get into that, um, what was your first film memory? Uh, well, I'll, I mean, the first film that I really had a big part in making was in high school, uh, ninth grade history class. And I got to the teacher, you know, was like, hey, you can write an essay about history or you can do something else. And I chose something else. And so I made a short film with my friends about Spartacus, you know, and it was a lot of fun. We dressed up in togas and chased each other around the woods with like cardboard swords and filmed it on an old uh, VHS tape player. And I edited it with two VHS players by playing one and then recording off the other. Um, it was great. I mean, and I think the, 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 the benefit that I took away was just the idea that film is a collaborative effort. You, you usually don't do it alone. Um, and, and I liked the community behind it. And so I didn't really have an aspiration to do more filming after that, but I, that memory had always stuck with me. Uh, and then I found that I keep coming back to film for the community. Mm -hmm. That's crazy with the linear editing of the VHS systems. And uh, like, explain what's it like to do more of the VHS players that you were saying for people might to take Adobe Premiere and have it for granted. Well, I only did it once and I was in ninth grade and I was really committed to it. But basically what you do is you use one tape to put all of your B-roll on and all of your scenes. And then you have another tape that is gonna be your final edit. And what you have to do is scroll through your first tape to find the scenes and the bits that you want, cue it up. And then on your second tape in your second VCR, have that tape ready to go at the time marker you want that scene to start. Play the first tape, start record on the second tape, match it up. If it works, great. If it doesn't, restart the process until you've got it lined up. Wow, that's just like maybe a little easier for people who have experience with it than uh, the ones that don't. But also, um, did you ever see the Stanley Kubrick Spartacus before doing the Spartacus thing project you did for ninth grade? I'm I'm sure I saw um, the old Spartacus with I, I guess Kurt Douglas. I mean, um, I remember. You know, our teachers were always showing us some of those old uh, Greek and Roman mythology films, uh, history films, the ones with stop motion and big Hollywood battles, I guess, from the 60s. That was just kind of a staple in um, school education at the time. And, I, you know, I, I can't really say that I was inspired by anything in particular when I made that first film in ninth grade. It was more um, a release, an idea of, of wanting to do something. Um, and, you know, as a kid, you know, you don't have a driver's license, you can't go anywhere, you don't have any money, uh, you live in a neighborhood and nothing's going on and you're just looking for something to get into and it's either going to be a, a positive thing like making art or a negative thing like breaking the law and so, uh, you know, I tried to find the positive things impossible. Well, it is a complete positive as, like, I understand that just making something doesn't have a relationship with just viewing other films, but um, do you consider yourself like a cinephile or not as much because just viewing movies is not related to what first drove me to make that Spartacus short? 
I, I love uh, storytelling. Um, I uh, love all facets of storytelling, how, how it's made, how it's communicated, how it's received. Um, you know, I, I actually spoke to a filmmaker during Como Shorts, which is our short film festival here. We do in Missouri or in Columbia for uh, local filmmakers. And there was a filmmaker um, named Kevin who came from Kansas City. And he said that, you know, he, he likes the people who, if we were bombed into the Stone Age and had to tell stories over a campfire, they could just tell a story with light and shadow in their bodies and their, and their voices. Like that idea of making something with whatever tools you have. Uh, that that's that resonated with me, and I and I think I like storytelling in the same way. It, it doesn't matter what tools you use; it's it's connecting with other people, and it's it's taking them on a journey. Um, it's summoning up experiences and emotions uh, that you know in in a new place in a new time. It's almost like uh, Stephen King, in his in his memoir on writing, talked about um, would be, not telekinesis. Um, when you speak to somebody through your mind, like the superpower. I don't know, telepathy? Yeah, tele te telepathy, or yeah, being telepathic, basically. You know, he, he described uh, Stephen King in his memoir on writing, talked about writing being uh, a telepathic connection. And, and he said it partly in jest to like, you know, go to his audience. But I think he's partly right too, that if you think about it, Somebody can take you to ancient Greece or to outer space or to, um, you know, a heroic adventure or a love tale or a tragedy. Um, and, and I don't know what else you call that except, except uh, being telepathic, you know, literally transferring your thoughts to someone else. Yeah. No matter what you have, like, you are always immersed to different universes with these types of stories that we have. And... Uh, um, after, um, what have got you further into trying to do more digital storytelling, let's say, after um, that ninth grade video, like what were some jobs you were doing before being an independent filmmaker in Columbia, Missouri? Well, um, my route was not uh, a straight line. I, um, I gravitated towards journalism and higher education because I, I was looking at careers where storytelling was a big part of, what, of the job and, and journalism was something I could relate to, right? I had local news in my town, a local newspaper. I could see journalism in action. Um, I could also understand uh, the impact and, good, and the difference that good journalism can make. So I aspired to all of that and um, I got to, to do some hands-on journalism at the University of Missouri. They've got the Missouri Method where you get to work at a newspaper or a radio station or a TV station. I got to work with veteran editors in a newsroom and, and cover a, a beat, covered government. Um, and the time I was in school was also the time that uh, DSLR, traditional still cameras, were, taking, were also offering video capabilities. And at the same time, these journalism schools and MU, which is like a leader in the, in the journalism schools in the country, was, you know, adding, um, you know, hybrid, uh, hybrid uh, requirements to its, its reporters. You're not just a reporter. You may also be a photographer. You might also be a videographer. You know, you have to do multiple kinds of media. And so when I got a chance to do photos and video, um, it was just accessible. You know, there, I mean... 
it was just a tool that I had and I enjoyed it. So um, the gateway drug for me into narrative film was documentary film. And then uh, once I got into narrative film, you know, documentary film you can do by yourself. One of the few kinds of filmmaking that just a person in a camera can do. Uh, narrative film um, by definition requires two people. Like I just can't imagine anybody being their own crew and cast in a, uh, in a narrative film. It just seems impossible. So, um, you know, the, the, the community in Colombia is, is passionate. Um, there are filmmakers here who um, they eat, sleep and breathe filmmaking. And uh, that passion is contagious. You can't help but catch the bug when you, when you work with people on these projects, whether the project is a day long shoot or a month long shoot. And um, once you build connections with a group of people, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're bound to them. Um, you're, you're tied together through, through that experience. And um, I don't know if you hear the, the uh, heating just kicked on in my vent here. I don't know if that's really loud for you. Um, I think we can just let it go and like, like I'll I, let me turn let me turn it off for you real quick. I'm gonna turn it off. Yeah, but and also we can just let people know that we do this on Zoom, like Team Deacon. So okay, so if you hear a little background, it's fine. Yeah, I'm not too forced on that, but yeah, but I do want to go back a little further before finding that community and working with others because. You were there before there was a documentary journalism program that I was a student of, and so was Zoe Shed, and also that the only type of classes you could take with this, like video-wise, according to Stacy Wolfel, was um, KMU. What was the certain type of courses you could do video storytelling? Well, I no, I, I think Stacy's right. There weren't a lot of options for uh, any kind of digital video storytelling at MU when I was a student there. Um, like I said, you know, I, I when I was getting there, journalism was just starting to add video to their deliverables. They were just starting to do video stories at the Missourian. Uh, KOMU, obviously, you know, a TV station, they do video primarily. But um, it was very exclusive. You know, you had to go to KOMU to do uh, TV packages, and and TV packages are kind of its own special niche. Uh, you know, they've got a specific formula. Um, there's a script. You know, you use B-roll in a certain way. It's uh, it has to fit the paradigm of of journalism and what's accepted. Um, you know, and and that's pretty limited in the world of uh, media making. Um, you know. Filmmaking is, is a lot more rich and diverse than just uh, you know, evening news TV packages. So when I was at school, there wasn't a lot of um, video or filmmaking in the curriculum. It was a lot of do-it-yourself, uh, extracurricular activities, uh, groups of people finding themselves and working on projects together. Um, you, know, you learn through YouTube tutorials, uh, reading online forums, um, I guess the one great thing is that the university did have a lot of new computers with, uh, it was first, it was, um, oh, what was it? Um, Final Cut, Final Cut Pro, and then eventually made the switch to Adobe. So the university definitely had some key resources, but it was more of just a, a Petri dish for people who were looking 
for how to make films at a no budget level in Columbia, Missouri. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, thank you for adding more of like the different generation differences between you and I as Mizzou alums, but also um, what got you more interested in narrative filmmaking after doing news or journalistic documentary storytelling? Um, narrative filmmaking is a challenge. I think uh, coming from a journalism background, journalism is about listening to people who already have a story to tell and then helping them tell that story. Uh, narrative, um, it's almost like floating in space. There's no rules. Um, it's the limits of your imagination. And I think that challenge interests me. Um, you know, it's, it's intimidating to start with a blank piece of paper and try to write a script from nothing um, because you have so many options. And I, and I think that that, uh, that leads to a process of uh, having to listen to yourself a lot. You have to ask yourself, what stories do I care enough about to invest this effort in? Um, so as a, as a, as a writer, um, I find narrative a, a really um, fascinating world to inhabit. I'm, I, I can't say that I'm, I'm that good at it. Um, it's, it. It's a challenge that I, I keep coming back to though, because it's so, it's so hard. And I think that if you can get it right, it's such an amazing gift to give an audience, tell a narrative story from scratch. Um, one of the things I, I think is missing in a lot of our media, uh, like Netflix, Prime Video, the, the stuff that we watch on a daily basis is that it's not really made uh, with a local audience in mind. It's not really made for a specific group of people. Often it's made uh, to have as broad appeal as possible. And that's great, but I don't think that that satisfies audiences. I think people want to see stories where they're in it, where, where people they know are in those stories. They wanna see stories about their region, their area, maybe even their town or their neighborhood. They wanna see stories uh, with people that, that, that they can see in their daily lives or, or that stories that feel real, uh, not, not, the, not the Hollywoodized versions of it. And um, I think once, once people get a taste of local filmmaking and, and feel what it's like to both make a local film and to view a local film, the night and day difference between that and a, uh, and a larger budget film that's not made for a particular audience is uh, you, you can't ignore it. Mm -hmm. That really makes me think about what's happening right now in Missouri with the filmmaker tax incentive, where there had been three Evans, Missouri, F3 billboards outside of Missouri and the, um, the Ozark, where it's filmed outside Missouri, but it says it takes place in Missouri, and uh, it it speaks a lot about what you're saying about the need for like local storytelling too, and that really ties up with like what are like some of the great things about doing uh, a stuff with other locals that's for your local audience, whether it's a wedding, a commercial or other narrative work that you're doing with these frame productions? 
Yeah, I, 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 um, I think that filmmakers have been duped on a large scale. Um, I, I think that uh, as filmmakers, we're often, our, our role models are often these figures who go off uh, and, and, and sit atop, you know, uh, the successes of making Hollywood films. And um, any filmmaker who does not get to engage with their audience, any filmmaker who does not get to participate in the conversations that happen as a result of their film is missing the feedback that they need to tell their next story. Um, films shouldn't be a one-way conversation. It shouldn't be um, a, a filmmaker making something, giving it to the world, and then just going off and making their next project. Uh, films should be the, the start of conversations. It should be an invitation, an invitation to relate and engage. Um, and so these mass-produced films, I mean, uh, entertainment is great, but I think, you, I think we could do more as filmmakers. I, I think we can use films uh, to build the relationships that we're interested in having in our communities and our towns and our states. Um, and that can only happen if you make films and you're around the people who are going to watch them. Um, you're deprived that when you make a film that, you know, is released across the country and it's for everyone and it's for no one, you know, and um, it seems like a lonely way to make films. Yeah, it is unfortunate, but with um, I'm just gonna like um just edit here. Like I'm trying to think right now. Like just cut this portion off. I'm trying to think of a segue point. I'm sorry that I'm point blank right now, but yeah, it's um about how filmmaking can be lonely sometimes because when people travel a lot, um, it affects families. And I really love what you do in Missouri and with Midwest is to sh get the local communities together and introduce high schoolers a lot of filmmaking. Explain more what Midwest does. Uh, so VidWest is a second generation community media nonprofit. It's taking over the reins from a former nonprofit called Columbia Access Television. Uh, Access Television channels are um, institutions across the country. Um, they, are, they were created by federal legislation in the 1970s um, when private companies were owning the airwaves and it was, saw, it was seen by the government that there was a need for uh, public channels, channels that would be owned by the community and that the community could uh, express itself through. So um, public access channels have been created, have been around for a long time. Uh, Columbia's uh, channel was created in the early 2000s. And as a result, it's always been trying to find itself because as we created the public channel in Columbia, so too is YouTube coming up. And the ability to self-distribute through the internet and cell phones were having cameras in them. And so these resources that uh, a, Columbia, uh, a, a public access channel would normally provide, suddenly became more available. And I don't think that our community media channel in its first iteration ever really figured out what its role is. So with VidWest, what we're trying to do is 
uh, take a second bite at the apple and say, okay, if you had a studio space, uh, equipment, you know, cameras, mics, lights, uh, it was low cost access to the community. If you use that to attract local professionals, mentors, people with knowledge about how to make media, and you invited the public to join you, what comes of that? And I, and I think that Midwest is still answering that question. We've only been around since, uh, you know, early part of 2020. Um, and, you know, half our time in our space has been under pandemic lockdown. Uh, so as you can imagine, you know, people don't want to come into a studio when there's a, a plague on the land. Um, you know, lately what we've been doing is focusing on the remote uh, media that people are seeking. So live streams and live stream productions. We've been doing quite a bit of that. Um, we recently did live streams for the state of Missouri for their bicentennial. Um, we live streamed speeches by the governor, by the Supreme Court Justice of, of Missouri. Um, we've been live streaming um, conferences, fundraisers, um, events uh, at MU, such as uh, Tap Day and Greek Fling. Um, so uh, VidWest is a community resource and the community continues to guide us about how it wants to use that resource. And our goal is to advocate for community media um, and continue to make it viable uh, so that it has the resources it needs to run. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And how do you plan on making more sustainable as all of it was just all in the middle of a pandemic and the and keep getting interest from the public when some people don't want to be there because they're worried about COVID. Well, I mean that that's for people to decide. People will decide how how much they want to engage in civic life. Um, you know, we're Vidwest in terms of its physical studios offers a sandbox for people. Um, people we, we provide the you know the four corners and the sand and people have to bring their imaginations and their initiative. So if you come to our sandbox and you say you wanna make something, we'll help you do it, we'll equip you, we'll train you, we'll give you guidance, but ultimately it's, uh, it's up to your initiative and, and your vision on what you wanna make and who you wanna make it with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, uh, and it does really tie up with um, your own experience and ways of just making things in Columbia because as you told me before that you've done almost every role and less the importance of having the experience of almost every role even it's just a one or two per crew. Yeah I mean uh, indie filmmaking is uh, you know there's, there's a, a level where you have to be prepared to wear multiple hats to, to have your project finished. Um, and obviously the goal is to be able to develop a a strong team around you, a team of people you trust and respect, um, because I think your your work will improve when you can focus on um, one role and 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 not have to wear many hats. Um, I've seen that happen a lot with writer, director, producers, people who try to do those three things at once, especially producing and directing at the same time, because those can be um, those roles can pull you in different directions on a set where you're directing and trying to work with actors and producing and trying to handle logistics for, ne for next scene or next day, that's not a good place to be. Um, and so uh, 
over time, you know, if you if your community um, grows around you, you get the freedom to just focus on the one thing that you want to do really well. Um, right now, I'm finding that I'm playing a producing role quite a bit on sets, and I think that's because of my time in Columbia, um, the, the amount of projects I've been on, um, the you know, frankly, just the connections that I've been able and the relationships I've been able to build over the years. Um, so that if a person comes to me with a project, they need something, I've usually had to answer that question on other projects, and I have a short list of locations, resources, or people that they can, they can do, and then suddenly I'm producing for them on that project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what got you more into producing more than as a director or the other positions you once had? Um, you know, my, my number one priority is to support the community. Um, it's, it's why I cook on many of the films that I'm a part of, because uh, that needs to happen. And I take a lot of satisfaction in feeding a crew that's working hard to make their art. Um, I do producing because I think that that's the best way I can support the community right now. Cool. You also told me earlier that if you don't feed the crew, it will not, your project would not work. Nope, probably not. <laughs> but, but yeah, and uh, um, what were some uh, like roadblocks along the way to establish like these um, collaborative spaces with Midwest? Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, this is a cliche, but usually it just comes down to you keep saying yes. And people say, hey, can you do this? If you can and you want to, you say yes. You find ways to say yes. Um, and then, so there's not one landmark. It, it's really a, a continuous path. Um, I think uh, along that path, it's good to assess where you're at. Say, is this where I want to be? Am I going in the right direction generally? And if you answer negative to any of those questions, to maybe try to do some course correction, figure out where you want to go and, and, and alter that path. Um, I believe that everybody has something inside of them that is kind of their, their beacon or their compass, and it's telling them what direction to go. Um, and that if you follow that, uh, wherever you go, you'll be, in, you'll be where you should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do see this in times in these certain types of partnerships with they have with Cafe Berlin for Berlin Nights. I saw some of your concerts as well as working with True False for like the Gimme Truth was literally at Midwest for the this year. What's it like to like work with like literal huge um, the, um, landmarks within the Columbia? Downtown, downtown Columbia? Um, I mean, it's just like working with any other team of people. Um, I guess if you work with a film festival that's got a $3 million budget, you just have uh, more resources at your disposal and, and, and probably um, a really experienced crew. But um, the work is really similar. I mean, it doesn't matter if you make a film for free or if you make it with a budget. Uh, a lot of your challenges are going to be the same challenges. How do I tell a story? Um, how do I capture a vision? How do we make time in the schedule to get a shot? Um, um, a ca camera breaks, how do we get another camera? You know, it's, it's same challenges. You just might have more resources to, to solve problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and 
no matter what tools you have, you're always telling a story. And that even applies to making uh, like a phone short film for a phone film festival with Moonface. Like I, like when you came to my close production class, you, we all had to make our own versions of Moonface, which was really impressive about just trying to find the type of beats that have different genres. One's felt more scarier than the other, or one was a little more comedic than the other. Like, what's it like to see like your own work having different cuts? Oh, it's great. I, I, I love working with your class, uh, Eddie, and, and, and getting to see uh, this project reinterpreted through like 20 different editors. Um, I, I think that um, whenever you're, you get the benefit of working with another individual who applies themselves uh, to, to your film and you get to see their interpretation of it, um, oftentimes it's a, uh, an eye-opening experience. You, you may see uh, opportunities to tell a story that, that you never saw as, as an individual. And I know I saw that in the edits from your class where people created scenes and beats uh, that I don't think the original crew were ever aware of. Um, so if anything, you know, the, it shows the potential that raw footage has. Um, it may show why post-production can be a challenge too. And why when you go into a project, you really need a clear vision of your story. Otherwise, you might get lost in the woods with just all the options. Mm -hmm. And does uh, really want me to ask you next about the, uh, as, you do many stages of productions like pre, principal, and post. And how does your vision change from one stage to another? Because you may have this thought when you come into a certain space, but then it ends up differently in the better light. So wait, what's the question, Eddie? Um, I'm asking you about, as you were saying about how we didn't really think of it like that in this certain type of beats when you see different cuts of Moonface. I'm asking you about um, maintaining a vision, not so making sure allowing the space for like new things to come up they didn't thought of before. Yeah, um, I think that you need somebody with a strong vision on set that's supposed to be the director and uh, this provides uh, clarity and organization uh, when the crew has to make a lot of decisions. Uh, once you get to post-production, there's probably a little bit more uh, space to explore other options if, if you wanna do that. Uh, you know, sets are, are such um, you know, uh, pressure cookers in terms of having time uh, and limited resources that it may be more difficult to be having creative discussions there especially if you're re-examining the bones of your story. Like you really, your director should know what's going on so they can just give an order and then the crew can follow it. Um, in post-production, you know, if the director wants to explore various cuts, you know, that can be part of their workflow. Um, and, and you could invite different people into the editing process, I suppose. Um, I really, I think it's pretty rare that you can find uh, creative people who are peers who will build off of each other. More often than not, when I see creative people open up their workflow to others uh, and give them equal standing, it seems like one person will just tear down what another person has done and vice versa. 
And rather than building each other up with their different um, interpretations of a story, they end up competing uh, to, for, for their own interpretation to, to, to conquer the other one. So if you ever find a, a filmmaking partner whom you feel like together you, you build each other up rather than tear each other down, that's a really special thing. And I would hold on to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when you said about exploring other options, do you most of the time stick with the script or maybe change like a certain like shots you attended from one cut and alternate into another cut or sequence? I think the director should always feel, um, feel like they have the option of tweaking their story on set, you know? You, uh, you have a script, that's one version of your film. Once the camera is set up on set and you see the frame and you see a performance, uh, you may get another version of the film. And so the director needs to maintain the flexibility to make decisions on set to adjust their vision. Absolutely. I, perhaps there's a director who so solidly grasps their story and the mechanics of how to make it that they don't need to do that. But uh, I have not met such a director in my time. Hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. But also, um, like, what's your approach when it comes to cinematography or directing? As do you rather have natural light or have a, like a low key or high key sub? Or like, what would be like some of your like approach to lighting or editing? I mean, there's really two, two things that are gonna affect your decision about lighting. I think one is the logistical decision. What can you afford? What do you have time for? Uh, what, what is there space for? Um, what, what lights will your electrical grid support? Um, and then there's the creative decision. You know, what, what lighting is gonna further the story? Um, you gotta answer both the logistics, you know, the practical questions about your lighting and the creative places. And then wherever those two meet is, is your lighting. So I, I, don't, I don't approach film saying, uh, you know, all my films are going to look, have one style of lighting. Um, I, I don't feel the need to do that. Yeah, every movie should have its own tone, depending on the context and the genre of that movie. And that that's really much that, I have, but before I let you go, is there a film they want to recommend that's little to, that's not popular to most audience groups? I, I don't know what's popular to most audience groups right now. Um, I can say that some of my best filmmaking experiences, uh, I can think of a few, few films that I watched that uh, left a, a mark on me. I can still remember what it was like to, to see them in the theater or to see them at home. Uh, one was Princess Mononoke, which is an animated film. I believe it came out in the early 2000s or late 1990s. Um, it's just a beautiful film, beautiful soundtrack. Uh, kind of has the um, mythical storytelling of, uh, of, of kind of a Japanese fable. And, uh, and then another film is Children of Men, um, mm -hmm. which is a post-apocalyptic film uh, based on a book. 
And, um, you know, I don't want to go like, I could talk about these films as a whole, like another podcast, uh, yeah. but there are times when you will see a piece of art and it will kind of send electricity through you. It's some kind of like direct connection with some super strong emotion. And I remember seeing both of those films and having that experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what was specific about Princess Mononoke and Children of Men that really attached you so much that of what you took out of? Um, I'll be honest, when I, when I watched those films, I wasn't watching the filmmakers. So I wasn't trying to break it down and figure out how they made it. I was just engaged. And, um, and so my experience, you know, maybe it was a little naive, but I, I watched Pr- Princess Minonoki, and, and I think uh, nature is a huge theme in that film. Uh, the idea that uh, humankind is, is, can grow divorced of nature through um, seeking like industry. I mean, it's literally a film about forest spirits that are fighting uh, a town that's making guns. Like, <laughs> you know, and um, I remember watching that film and, and and feeling partly like I just needed to have that connection myself. If, at the time, you know, I was in high school. Um, I felt like high school was not school. It felt more like prison. Like you had to get up at 6 a.m., catch the bus. These people owned you for like six or seven hours. And... Uh, then they let you go and called it education. I never really felt uh, like that was a good part of my life. It felt like I was um, somewhat under duress. And I remember watching Princess Minonoki. And it was probably like my sophomore, my, junior, my freshman or sophomore year of high school. And I remember feeling, feeling that oppression and what felt like oppression at my school. And and something about that film gave me hope. I can't tell you exactly what it is in a moment, but I just remember feeling hope. I could breathe again after watching that film. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, that's a testament to um, the, 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 the vision and the, and the beauty that that filmmaker conjured up through, through their story and their music and their animations. Mm-hmm. Do you also feel hope when you watch Children of Men? Yeah, I mean, that's a, uh, also a morality tale in some regards, right? Uh, because Children of Men is about a world in which um, humankind can no longer have children. And, and the reason is not, a, not clear, but it basically has set a term limit, uh, an expiration date for humankind. And it, it, it offer, you know, Children of Men offers, you know, commentary of what the slow degradation of society would look like and, and it really focuses not on the external threats to mankind, but the internal ones, what we do to ourselves when we're scared as a people, you know, the, the, the scapegoats and the refugees, how they're mistreated, the terrorism and violence in the streets as different people vie for political control. Um, and the film, I mean, it, it's an amazing film. Um, it was extremely well shot, well made, well acted. Um, but there's a scene in that film that just stands out for me uh, as just this, it just transcends the film. You know, I forgot that I was watching a film in this scene and it's near the end. And if you haven't seen this film, I'm about to give you a spoiler. Uh, it's near the end of the film, 
the one pregnant woman in the world has been uh, stolen away by a, a extremist group. There is a pitched battle in, in a ghetto with uh, these gray haired, you know, state soldiers who are like literally the last generation of soldiers fighting these terrorists and there's a pregnant woman in the middle of it. And Clive Owen, who's the kind of the hero anti-hero is, is trying to chase, you know, get in the middle of it. He has no gun, he is unarmed and it's a single shot of him racing through the streets and there's explosions and chaos. It feels a lot like the um, beach landing scene in Saving Private Ryan where there's just bullets flying and there's, there's blood and water splashing up onto the camera. Um, it, 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 it's a white knuckler for certain. Um, but the way that scene ends, um, Clive Owen uh, finds uh, the, the mother and he, he shelters her. And then they start to leave this building, which is really just uh, bullet ridden, um, full of wailing refugees and people who are shot up and injured and soldiers shooting and, 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 and these rebels shooting back. And um, as this woman appears holding a baby and it's really like kind of biblical, um, everybody stops in their tracks. Like all of the fighting, a whole, basically a whole battle, everybody, hundreds of people just stop shooting at each other to look at this mother and her baby. And uh, I mean, you just got to see the scene. It just blew me away. And, and it was such a, I think, a powerful representation of what, what we are uh, as human beings. You know, it was both at the same time, our um, capacity to do violence, as well as our uh, deep well of compassion and how people are a paradox. We have both of those things at the same time. And seeing that happen, I was totally unprepared for that scene the first time I saw it. And uh, it still strikes a strong chord with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw Children of Men a few years ago. And the things that I love about that movie was more about the blocking deck, Fonso Cron dealing, the opening about where to pay attention, which crowd to look at, and then see Clive Owen walking in, okay. And then, like, I have... Like in that movie, there's a lot of great choreography, not with actors wise, but also cinematography and all the other sound effects that have a perfect cue where if one of those effects or people made a mistake, it will not have that same impact as you're describing right now of like any of those scenes from that movie. And I really enjoyed talking with you, Matt, and have a good day. Okay. Thanks, Eddie. Pleasure to talk with you, too. Today's concluding thought, 2022 Big Sky Film Festival. I am proud to attend the 2022 Big Sky Film Fest after they invited my thesis film, The American Frontier. I admit that I did not know the fest deeply when I submitted my film. However, I heard through passing ones from my professors that my film is a good fit for them, and because Movie Maker Magazine named Big Sky one of the 50 film festivals that's worth the entry fee. So I shot my shot, and the rest is history. I have to say that the fest makes you a home with the generosity of its volunteers and high-level staff. I wish Scats of Anna could be more courteous to the short filmmakers and treat them like feature filmmakers. Unfortunately, that's not the case as it nosebleed plays a hierarchical line between shorts and feature, and fiction and nonfiction. They did not even provide me with a list of contacts, 
It'll be nice to get Candid Branagh's, Cody Smith McPhee's, and Emma Seligman's emails. But Big Sky is more supportive in places and environments where there's no such thing as scarcity between other filmmakers by having such a list and workshops and panels that support filmmakers of all levels and genres. And because documentary filmmaking is smaller where there is more community support than fiction spheres. I wish I had my film be a world premiere there because I was hoping for my film to be nominated for the Big Sky Award at the fest. The award is about the American West spirit and my film synopsis is literally the award definition. But I'm fine just to be there and they factor in world premiere status whether US, North American, or world for the films to be considered competition. I don't care about that much, but that's just an amazing award description that really fits my movie. Just saying. After speaking to a filmmaker at the fest, I realized that we were connected by having people we know of in my film, The American Frontier. Hopefully soon, I'll go further on it once when that guest comes to real print. I play Instagram tag with some filmmakers where we follow each other on Instagram. Some of them I keep in touch once in a while and share our works outside the festival window. I met a fellow Marisa alum, Taylor Hensel, one of the many producers for Minotaur's Reciprocity Project, where the show explores the bioreciprocity made by and about communities that have survived and thrived through other man-made catastrophes and provide their own definitions of the word reciprocity. As many indigenous languages don't have a word for reciprocity. One of their episodes, what they've been taught, is directed by her sister Britt and got to play at Sundance, Big Sky, and Santa Barbara Film Fest and got acquired by LA Times. I also met 2021 filmmaker magazine Newface Nia Bernstein. She presented a funny emotional portrait of her family in the closing night film Charm Circle. It was terrific to see the filmmakers of Last Days of August, Robert Matchoyan and Rodrigo Ojeda Beck at Big Sky and True False as they brought that film to True False too. It was free to let them know my screen responsibilities at True False as I could not disclose it to Sundance filmmakers virtually and we complimented each other on our works. I got to have the American Frontier to be played to middle schoolers, and it was a testament to have people under 18 years old seeing my film. It was fun to have a kid ask me about Japan when my film never goes there. They brought intelligent questions about my film and being a filmmaker. I will always cherish this experience. I learned a fest to self-advocate from Breakwater VP of Development and filmmaker Winnie Skaji where you need to be confident in reaching out to industry people. I hope that this will pay off when I get more prominent guests on Real Print. I hope to go to more fests as a filmmaker and journalist. I do not know if I'll go to the Peter Bogdanovich or Francois Truffaut route as a filmmaker. Plus, the only films after the American Frontier, what will my real specialty be? I'm not sure what it is, but I have no reasons to stop doing this shit, and that's today's concluding thought. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Real Print. This episode's music includes Continuum Mutation, courtesy of Kama, and Shimmering by Rafa Orchestra, courtesy of Epidemic Sounds. This episode is co-produced and edited by Anish Katu and Edward Frumpkin. 
please check out this episode's notes and links, as well as reviews, award, and seasonal predictions and essays written by yours truly at realprint.org. That is R-E-E-L print.org. This is Edward Frumpkin signing off.